Okay, deck is ready. Front of house is clear, so we are off. Have a great show, everyone. Standby, like you's 2 through 33, sound 1A through 7 on deck. Standby, Q actors, like you 2 and sound 1A, go. Sound 1.5, go. Like you 3 and sound 1B, go. Actors, go. Like you 4 and sound 2A, Go. Electrics, restore the blue run lights, please. Thank you. Welcome to Hang and Focus. Celebrating the stories, conversations, and people that light us up. I'm Jasmine Roth, Director of Learning and Education. And I'm Will Rogers, Director of Artistic Programs. We are your hosts for the show. And we are Arizona Theater Company. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Episode 8 of Hang and Focus. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we have a very special episode because Monday, uh, May 11th, we will be showing a special benefit uh, reading of The White Ship, a play written by our artistic director, Sean Daniels, about his experience uh, with addiction and recovery. And uh, it will be starring the original Off-Broadway cast. It was Off-Broadway just last year. And um, God, that was just last year. And um, right? uh, we're really excited to partner with the Voices Project on this um, amazing piece of theater and a, a fundraiser for amazing an amazing cause, both Arizona Theater Company and the Voices Project. Absolutely. So for this episode, we wanted to bring you other artists' stories, both their personal stories of recovery, but also the, the art that they're creating and celebrate that there's artists all over the country who are creating art around their stories of recovery and addiction. And so throughout this episode, you're gonna hear five different interviews that we did um, with wonderful, wonderful guests. And yeah. you'll also get to hear some short snippets from some of the, the musicals and the plays uh, and the songs that they do as part of telling their stories. Yeah, you know, I thought it was really interesting that so in so many cases, so many of so many of these artists, um, the idea of shame and um, and destigmatizing addiction came up over and over again, and uh, it was really great to hear that because a let's destigmatize uh, addiction, uh, certainly, and uh, also the fact that the Voices Project, our partner on this reading, um, that is really their platform. That is their mission uh, is to. Uh, have people share their stories in an effort to destigmatize um, and 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 have them be seen. Absolutely, and I love how well that mission ties into just what we do every day as theater artists um, in telling stories to increase more empathy and understanding for each other, no matter what circumstances or what life experiences we've had. Maybe we should get started with the Voices Project. So we are here with Ryan Hampton from the Voices Project, and we're really excited to bring him into the conversation and hear more about what the Voices Project does. Um, I know that their mission is changing the way America thinks about recovery one voice at a time, which I think is really inspiring and empowering. So Ryan, do you want to tell us a little bit um, about yourself, but also about what the Voices Project does? Sure. So I'm a person in long-term recovery uh, from a substance use disorder, uh, which means I haven't felt necessary to have a drink or a drug since February 2nd, 2015. But I'm also a brother, a son. Uh, I got engaged in June. I'm getting married in November. Uh, you know, I'm a voter. I'm a participant in my community, uh, founder of the Voices Project. Um, and I had, you know, I wasn't led into advocacy or telling my story or getting involved just you know, I, I didn't wake up on February 3rd and decide that that's what I wanted to do. I kind of consider myself like an accidental advocate. Um, and I think most people involved, you know, in this space from addiction recovery from a from um, an advocacy perspective um, are kind of accidental advocates. We're kind of led to this work as a result of um, circumstances, right? Things that we experienced once we got into recovery, got sober. Um, for me, it was... Um, you know, losing a lot of friends early on to, to overdoses. And um, I was really frustrated. And this was back in 2016. Um, not, not as much with the, the, the lack of conversation around the issue, but the lack of action around the issue. And, um, 
I at one point decided, you know, that, that, you know, maybe I should be public about it. Maybe I should be public about my story. Maybe I should tell it. Um, maybe I should encourage other people to tell it. And the Voices Project wasn't an organization when it started. It was, you know, basically at its core, it was a storytelling platform. It was a call to action. It was, you know, if you're impacted, tell your story, right? Um, and, and, and tell it in a way that you want other people who may not necessarily have any experience with their addiction or recovery, uh, maybe tell it in a way that they'll understand it. It was a simple blog. It was just, hey, do you have a story to tell? You can tell it through this blog. Um, because my personal experience was when I told my story for the first time, which I had decided, you know, I would do through, through this national op-ed um, that was published in May of 2016. Um, once I did that, I wanted to know what was next, right? Like I told my story and, and I was super nervous and I almost didn't do it um, because I was afraid that, I was afraid about how it was going to be received. But after it published, people reached out to me and, um, you know, things like I didn't know or me, you know, me too. I'm, I'm also in recovery or I'm looking for help or uh, um, how can I help, you know? Um, and it led me on this, what I call journey to what's next, journey of what's next. I wanted to know how I could get more involved, what I could do in my community, how I could get more people to share their stories, how we could build coalitions to maybe um, go impact change and ask for more funding for treatment and harm reduction and supports for people in recovery. Voices Project, you know, knowing that every single person in the country was going to have a hard time getting published in, in some sort of national op-ed, I wanted to give people a vehicle where they would be seen, they would be heard, they would be published, but I think more importantly that they would be led on their own journey of what's next. Like they would have that experience of just kind of shedding away all of those preconceived uh, notions that they had about themselves and their stories and that they could go through that same kind of process of change that I did uh, once my story was out there. I think at the heart of it and most importantly is empowering others to do the exact same work because let the next group of um, you know, storytellers and change makers take their place. Do you want to hear a story? Yes. Well, that works out. <laughs> because I have one to tell. I was 22, living here in Chicago, and this, my friends, is a true story. Welcome now to my meth tag, you. We're talking to Stephen Stratford, a Chicago-based artist who is also the creator of Methtacular, the musical, which is an autobiographical story of his journey to sobriety. I think the conversation that happens a lot um, is that people come up to me after the show and talk about anything ranging from uh, having struggled with eating disorders to um, not, um, you know, to alcoholism and drug use and all the way to not having um, said the right things to a parent before the parent died. Like people will come up and talk to me about just sort of these things that they carry around that I think we use shame as a, a way to keep ourselves safe in a lot of ways, right? Like if we convince ourselves that we're bad people, then we don't have to work as hard at being good people. <laughs> That's better. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, like, and who wants to, who wants to do any of that? It's exhausting. I think I want the show to be um, a springboard for the idea that like humor is a really good way to pick away shame. Yeah. You know, if, cause, uh, and I don't mean to belittle shame as like, oh, it's just this tool. I think it's something that is bigger than us in a lot of ways. Um, but like, if you can detach yourself from your own story and from your own actions enough to have a sense of humor around it, 
I think you can take away some of its power over you. I've begun fairly regularly mainline injecting crystal meth. Maybe this isn't the best situation. My guest starring role leaves me cold. But Larry will soon be the X and Y. I'm great sex. My goods are not old like Larry's. Problem number two. I've fallen in love with Ed, and he's begun telling me that he's going to leave Larry and get his own apartment with me. Drug break! <laughs> Daybreak. Drug break! Daybreak. I wasn't intending to write a play. Um, I was intending to write what I thought were David sedaris Augustine Burroughs-like essays. Um, I was going to The Moth a lot, the storytelling show in New York. And so I was writing these basically moth stories, right? And I was enjoying the writing. I don't know if enjoying is the right word. <laughs> it was uh, invigorating, the writing. And, um, and I would do these readings but you know, I'm in a theatrical world. I was, an, I was already an actor and um, I was friends with directors and playwrights and actors who all were like, oh, this should be a show. And I fought it, I fought it hard. I fought every, almost every good decision we made. I uh, had a nice musical theater career and standing up on stage and being like, hey, remember that time I was a meth addict and I like did all these things and I stole and I was a terrible person and I, you know, manipulated people. It wasn't, it didn't seem like the quickest route to Broadway. <laughs> and, um, and, and it wasn't, you know, um, I, I actually, you know, I left a national tour of a show to keep working on this show. Like I, it just became more important than like, I don't know. And it, it woke something up in me. And so I've written a few plays since then. And I, and I yeah, now I'm pursuing an MFA in uh, dramatic writing. So as soon as the drugs were delivered and I was able to extract myself from Duchamp's The Fountain. <laughs> I went over to Man's Country, my favorite bathhouse. The mildewed carpets feel sort of squishy beneath my feet. I walk and I smoke. I look at the men in the various rooms. I make lingering eye contact with the hot guy, but then I look away, because I don't want to give him any more satisfaction than he already gets looking in the mirror each and every day at his beautifully chiseled face and body, his stunning eyes and his gorgeous chin. I look away. So I cruise past the hottie, and round the corner is Ed. And he's leaning in the doorway of his little cell of a room. And as I'm now an expert in this area, I'm able to see that he's on GHB. He's swaying in his doorway, listing really. He gives me his best bedroom eyes and then falls down a little bit. <laughs> He's around six foot two, very handsome, and it is just about to pass him by. He looks tired. So I put my arm around him and I steady him down on the edge of the mattress covered platform that passes for a bed in his room and then he quickly passes out. Folks, in the room, visible are many, many bags of crystal meth. And there's like 400 or $500 just laying out in cash. You're out of the woods, you're out of the dark, you're out of the night. So I lie him back down on the mattress and I run to the bathroom and I splash some cold water on my face because it's decision time. In the choose your own adventure version of this story, you either A, go back to the room, steal the money and drugs, set yourself up for maybe two, maybe three weeks, or B, go back to the room, make him think you care about him, and then he'll take care of all of your drug and sex needs. When you're at the precipice of something new, a new job, a new relationship, a new source for your crystal meth, I recommend that you take a moment. Check in with yourself. <laughs> Ask yourself, is this job, 
Is this relationship, is this new source for my crystal meth the direction in which my spirit wind wants me to go? <laughs> we are joined now by Armand Fields, um, a, uh, an actor who is actually with us now in our artist housing. Uh, they were in our last show, uh, The Legend of Georgia McBride. Armand, will you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself as an artist? Sure, my name is Armand Fields. I use they, them pronouns. I am an actor and a drag queen. I do theater, but I also do film and television. I was currently on uh, the first season of Work in Progress uh, on Showtime, as well as I filmed a movie for Freeform and Disney called The Thing About Harry. Um, I, on top of doing drag shows in and around, I guess, the, the Midwest mostly, but I did do a show in New York. I was going to say around the country. Uh, I and also Tucson, have, and Tucson. And Tucson, yeah. So I guess doing drag around the country, yeah. <laughs> She's a nationwide queen. Uh, I also produce my other drag shows as well as I'm currently writing a series for television. I'd be interested to know if you feel like you're a different artist now than you were before you were in recovery. Oh, 100%, absolutely. Um, you know, the thing about recovery is that you have to be brutally honest with yourself and you have to strip away all of those things that I think we use to, to cope or to mask uh, with day-to-day -day living. And so when you take those away, you're kind of left with your most authentic, vulnerable self. Um, and so with acting and storytelling, you know, it is my job to tell the story in the most authentic, honest way. And I could only do that being my most authentic and honest self and being 100% free of any mind or mood alterers. When you, um, when you got sober, how, like, what, what was that process of going into that new life as an artist? Is that scary? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, um, it was also really beautiful because on one hand, my sobriety informed my art, and then in other ways, my art informed my sobriety. Yeah. Um, the further I went into both, um, you know, recovery is... It's a winding road, you know what I'm saying? It's never like a straightforward path. And I think it's, you know, living life on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, some days it's uh, the blue plan is kind of like, okay, this is what it's like. But another times it's like, well, what does my recovery look like? It's always like a daily assessment of what and how my recovery is looking. And I think... The beauty to that is that it keeps me fresh and on my toes, you know? Um, but also, you know, when I first started my journey to recovery, I wasn't still completely honest with myself. And my work as an artist, I feel like, suffered because of that. Um, but when I really delved more into recovery and got like 100% honest with what I was doing and how I was conducting myself. My work reflected that. Can you share with us some of the challenges that you face as both an actor and a drag queen, being sober in a community and a culture that has a lot of consumption in it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the beginning when I started doing drag, I was very apprehensive to completely Delve because you know drag has always been in the nightclub scene. That's its origin, you know, and that's where it lives. And that's really how you grow, I think, as a drag performer. Is like the bars that you're working at, like you know, and just being on the front line and just doing it, you know. Um, so in the beginning of my drag career, I didn't really do that 
I was very apprehensive. Thankfully, as an actor, you know, I was able to book roles doing drag, and so I'd do it in theater, and some of my theater friends would know that I did it, so they'd ask me to, like, host private events or, like, do one-offs and that type of thing, so I was, like, sort of, like, skating by on the outside of drag, not really, like, in it, in it, um, and it wasn't until I got, like, fully grounded and secure in my sobriety was I able to be, like, okay, I don't feel tempted at all when I'm at a bar and I don't feel triggered, but I know that like, it's a job and I have the job to go do. So like I go, I do my job, collect my money and leave, you know, and there's really no need unless I have like friends who came by for me to like stay and hang out. And that's what I love too. <laughs> like I love doing a drag show and then like packing up and leaving, like going to get a bite to eat and going home. Like that is my like, <laughs> that is my ideal, you know? And then as far as like, you know, um, in the theater and entertainment acting uh, realm, you know, it can be hard because sometimes castmates will go out to drink, uh, out, out for drinks after work. And sometimes I'm just like, I'm just gonna go home like, if we're just going to drink, like, that's something that I, unless it's, like, the first, like, day of us, like, getting to know each other, I, I'll go do it. But otherwise, unless there's, like, food or something, like, I'm going to go home, okay. you know. Um, and sometimes that, like, hinders, you know, the opportunity for these personal connections or friendships. Um, but for me, honestly, like, I believe that not all friendships have to grow and uh, occur in a bar setting or over alcohol. So it pushes me and I think it's refreshing for others when I'm like, hey, do you wanna go get lunch? Or hey, before we have rehearsal, like do you wanna go work out or do you wanna go grocery shopping together? just finding other social activities that doesn't involve drinking. And I think that's just as genuine, if not more, you know? The first thing we ever worked on together was a, was a show called Dinner Party at a Drag Queen's House. And yeah. um, you literally created an event that allowed us to celebrate and, and, and congregate around food and drink, but wasn't um, alcohol focused. I mean, alcohol was allowed, but it wasn't about going out to the bar and getting drunk or whatever, you know? Yeah. So like, I think that was naturally interesting. Do you, but because like, I've seen several of your, you know, a lot of your work, but I, but I've never seen any of your pieces particularly about um, your recovery. Uh, does that show up in your work at all? Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, the recovery scene in Chicago is amazing, and every year we have this huge drag pageant called Miss Serenity, and it's for people who are sober. Uh, to do drag and compete in a pageant. And it's all in good fun. Um, and you win a title and you host uh, fundraising events throughout the year and you have the title for the year. So whenever I was competing, I did the, I competed twice. Um, my number would sometimes focus around my recovery or my sobriety. Um, sometimes when I'm doing more conceptual pieces, yeah, it will involve sobriety for me, or like the tale of me and sober. Spirituality is a huge thing for me, like spiritual wellness. And so I have a church home in Chicago that I love going to called Lighthouse Church of Chicago. Uh, but it's a predominantly black LGBTQIA plus uh, congregation. And I would go every Sunday and I was involved and like do other social outings throughout the week. Um, but then I have became a host of a brunch show in Chicago. And so I wasn't able to go to church every Sunday. And so what I would do is uh, I would make it like a point to every Sunday I, I hosted, I would always make sure I did a gospel number as a way to like, bring my spirituality into my job. <laughs> and like they would go in because I would go in. And so, yeah, it would be a lot of fun. I love that so much. Uh, what, what advice would you give to other artists that um, are experiencing recovery? I think some artists coming into recovery believe that they are more creative because of the drink or the drug, and it's not true. And I would just 
challenge them to look at it from a different, different perspective. Meaning like, sure, you'd created some cool work while you were intoxicated, but think about how greater your work could be if you were sober, you know, or if you didn't have this thing hindering you from like your most authentic self. And um, I would say that like, there's so many artists in the mainstream who are sober. And it's just like, do some research. And you'll be like, wow, that person's sober. And so just knowing that there are people in your field who are sober and have like achieved greatness, know that like, you can do the same. I've always felt like music, there's something about music that um, has healing qualities. I mean, you take every, every music is therapy. And so, you know, people struggle with recovery. They struggle with addiction and then they struggle with recovery, you know, especially in the uh, earlier stages of recovery. There's a lot of uh, feelings that come up that aren't, that have been previously dealt with by, by using uh, substances to repress the feelings. Well, now they're all very raw and real. And music and singing are a way to help, you know, lift some of that. And so when I started um, uh, in recovery, I noticed that I, you know, I've always thought music was healing, but I noticed I really leaned on it a lot more and, and it had a different meaning. Uh, and it gave me purpose to actually have a choir that's, you know, people who are uh, recovered, who, you know, they, 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 they're, they're employed, they're recovered, um, they have today to be in recovery, they have this great gift they have, that they bring this, this service forward, they share their love through their music, and you know, that you see their smiling bright faces, they look healthy, they look uh, functional, they look just like anybody else in society. You know, so it kind of blows stigma away and it kind of shows people that there's life after, you know, uh, addiction and that there's good stuff that come out of people um, who are, you know, who've, who've uh, had lived experience with substance use disorder. So that was TJ Murphy, one of the directors of the Hope Ensemble, a choir in New Hampshire, where I'm from. Um, and what has always stuck with me about this group is how they empower people to find their voices and create a space where anybody can heal and recover from whatever they've gone through. The Hope Ensemble is part of um, the Hope New Hampshire Recovery Center, which is a community recovery organization, one of 17, one of, one of 17 in New Hampshire. People go there to fellowship, uh, get your hair cut there. There's usually food around. There's all kinds of folks hanging out. And, um, you know, so for people who are getting out of treatment, people getting out of detox, you know, not to go right back into the old lifestyle. They have a place to go where people around are trying to sprinkle recovery on them. So we meet there once a week and rehearse. You get a group of people together and, uh, and they're really down for the cause. They really want to bring the spirit of recovery through music. And that's a beautiful thing. But the, the flip side is that is that when it's time for them to perform, they get up in their head and they're all like self-conscious and it's like, uh, they get it's so funny because I thought we would be like administering some kind of healing thing on a, on a community when I after being in the choir for a while, I realized it was something for the choir. You know, the, mm. the, the choir recovers through this process. You mentioned you discovering music and, and leaning on that during your recovery journey. Did you feel like you needed to do something for other people? That's a great question because, you know, part, part of what I've done all my adult life is have a band and try to market and promote the band and the music. And it wasn't until the choir that I, I just allowed my skills and talents to be used on behalf of a cause and a group of people other than myself. That's a representation of how I try to do everything now, you know, um, because I, the, one of the key components to my successful recovery is that uh, I'm no longer in charge, I'm no longer at the helm, and I'm no longer uh, interested in just satisfying my own self and my own interests. It's about what can I be involved with that's greater than me that I can contribute and be a part of. And when you get that feeling uh, continuously being a part of, 
Um, I never find the need to go back and use a substance or take a drink or anything like that. I just feel fulfilled and whole. Get with the people who got your back. Get Find somebody who's got your back and hold on and do it together. You know, the, uh, the opposite of addiction is connection. The opposite of suicide is connection. And so we run these events so people will connect and then, then the choir sing songs that represent why it's important, why we value that connection. and a director and a playwright here in Tucson and I've been doing that for a very long time but more the playwriting has been more recently so probably in the last five or six years that I've really gotten into that I was always wanted to be a fiction writer and tried to write many novels and realized that what I really love is the dialogue <laughs> so I was like oh and uh, being an actor I thought well, we'll try writing a, a play and the rest is history for me anyway but uh, and so the interesting thing about improv is the more you do it, the more deep you get into what, it's not just about jokes, it's never right. about jokes. Um, it's about truth and listening and being in the moment. And one of the things I learned early on was that a character should never be, you should never play a character mentally ill or on any type of substance um, as a joke for a lot of reasons. A, it's mm -hmm. what we call punching um, down. You know, we should always, you know, be very conscious of that but it's also because it also can excuse the behavior because people will often use it as a way to cover racism abuse um, or just being a bad person um, so it kind of started my consciousness about that and this was even before I was in recovery myself that I was really had that in my creative brain am I using that to serve the story and I think it's the same thing with any type of those types of behaviors, whether it's you know drinking or your drugs or whatever it is, um, mm -hmm. and not just to be sensational or to try and create some incredibly right, dramatic right. moment. I, I've seen a lot of bad depict depiction of people in those situations. You know, TV right. shows and and things that just get it so wrong. Um, mm -hmm. That I, I just I want to I'm happy to to give just a little piece of my story and to give a voice to the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm not sure. censoring that. It's interesting because it's also presented itself as an actor. It's presented me with some really interesting situations where I did, one of the first shows I did after I was in recovery, um, the whole cast was supposed to be, and obviously not real alcohol, but supposed to be doing shots throughout this one scene. And I was like, I don't, I don't know that I feel not that I felt bad about it, like, oh, people shouldn't be drinking, but I just didn't want to put myself in a place where it brought back any type of sure, like body memory or mm -hmm. any kind of reaction. And so I talked totally. to the director and she, so that, that's the thought was, I said to her, is, is it going to, it won't change anything for me to not drink in this scene as this character. And as long as she was okay with it, you know, and I've turned down shows that 
we're very much not that, <laughs> that we're very much reliant on that for the humor or for the, gotcha. you know, right. nationalistic drama. Yeah. Yeah. And of course you have to set your own boundaries around those kinds of things. Artistically, like I was in a show at uh, Scoundrel and Scamp called The Little Prince, which a lot of people know that story. And um, Claire Mannell uh, was the translator. She took the original French text and translated it. And Holly Griffiths was our director. And when we read the script, the translation that was given for one of the characters was the drunker or the drunk, I think it was. Um, and it just, it didn't sit right in my butt. And if it was this, if it was this, like a, a, a script that was licensed and we had to worry about wording, like I probably sure. wouldn't have said anything, but because it was, it was such an organic, um, almost, it was really a devised piece in a lot of ways. I sat down and talked to Holly, the director, and I said, you know, my concern is that this is a family show and that kids are there. I get choked up. Kids are there that might have that experience of their parents being a drinker and having it be the drunk and having it being played for comedy was something that just, it just didn't feel right. And I wanted my voice heard, but I told her that it's your piece. And I, and I just wanted to share my, my experience. And um, we had a great conversation about it and really kind of learned from each other and how, sure. you know, and, and um, they ended up changing it to the drinker, which I thought was great because it's just descriptive and not pejorative. And sure. the interesting thing to me about this and I, was that when we did it, that scene, you know, it no matter how, pardon the, the pun, but how soberly um, Nicole played that role every time, whether if it was an audience of, of third graders or an audience of adults, it got laughs every time. And I, it was so interesting to me um, because I think that's, I don't know if that was out of in, like that nervousness um, or just because that's the, that's what the person who is, um, typically in that role, what they're typically used as. Right, right. So interesting. That's super interesting. Just kind of like dramaturgically how over history yes. we've seen that archetype or that character um, and then what we associate it with it, even if it's being played kind of against type. I mean, just what is our responsibility as storytellers to honor and advocate and, and tell stories in a way that gets rid of some of that, that prejudice and that shame and, and whatever it else is kind of imbued in those archetypes or in those stereotypes that we're playing out on stage or even in other storytelling modalities. It's asking ourselves as artists, does it serve the story? Is it too convenient? Is, it, is there not a stronger choice? But if that is the choice that you want to make, you know, do, do the research, talk to people who have that experience. Um, you know, there are open meetings of AA that anybody can go to. Um, and there's lots of literature too. But I think that, you know, it's, it's painfully obvious. I, I can always tell when someone has no idea beyond like the shiny Hollywood idea of what a, an AA meeting looks like. Um, sure. But again, I, I just think the question is, does it serve the story? And if it does, then do the work. You know, I... I have, I always have like a running list of ideas of plays that I want to write. And sometimes an idea will pop up and I'll think, for example, there, there's a historical one that I've been thinking about, um, about an African American couple in, in early, um, post right soon post slavery. Um, it's, it's a fascinating story that I wanted to write about, but then I thought, is that my story to tell? You know, like, is that, is my voice the voice that could do the proper, justice to that story and I just feel like that's a question that doesn't get asked enough mm -hmm. is is this my story to tell and if it, and if it's just a piece of the story again does it serve the greater I'm trying right. to accomplish um, I love that I think those two questions can make all the difference you know does this serve the story and then is this my story to tell like there's no part of me that, that right now feels the need to write something that is, I'm going to write you a play about an alcoholic and her journey, you know? Um, because in, because I, it, it just doesn't inspire me right now, but I also know that I am so much more than 
the fact that I'm in recovery. It's just, it's something that does color what I do, but it is not me. Um, so I haven't set out to write that. It just kind of, it'll pop up with my care, even if it's something very subtle. Um, you know, it's, there's always a piece of it in there and I don't, without intention. <laughs> um, and the, the, actually the, the play that, um, I want to share an excerpt with you today of, um, it was interesting because what came out for me was a, a male character sharing his experience of his mother being an alcoholic, which isn't my experience, but it, it was very cathartic for me to, to take on the role of someone who may be affected by someone who um, was using and what that might feel like, you know, what that amends process feels like, what the, what the, just that experience um, helped me to kind of get through when I was on that, when I was on that phase of my recovery of, of making my amends of like really digging into what that meant. not trying to nag you, Ryan. Okay, maybe I am, but if it were me and, and Sarah was here with Justin and the babies, I, I'd be devastated if I didn't get to at least hear her voice one more time. She's... God damn it. Listen, I know she hurt you, but sweetheart, she was sick. Drunk. Okay, she was drunk, and she made a lot of mistakes. That's kind. Just give her this. Let her know that her son loves her. She knows that. Does she? Yes. No, I don't care. Maybe she doesn't deserve it. Don't do that to her, Ryan. To her? She's in recovery. She made her amends. You mean her plea for absolution? Yeah, fine. I forgive her. Dominus, ominous, Patsy Armstrong. Jesus Christ, Ryan. Well, I fancy myself more popish than... Christish, but I'll take it. Do you want the last thing she hears from you to be silence? Maybe. She's not important to me right now. You are. I'm here with you. She's not. Good. Ryan. When I was seven, I came home from school like I always did. I threw my backpack down, got out my homework, sat at the table and waited. She always came home at four, no matter what. Even when she was drunk, four came and went, five o'clock, six o'clock, it got dark. I remember being so hungry, seven, eight, nine o'clock. I just sat there waiting for her, so scared that she was dead or that she'd left me or whatever. And then there she was. She came stumbling in drunk with some strange guy. Thick laughed and walked right past me into her bedroom. Never said a word to me. Closed the door. Didn't care if I'd eaten. Didn't care if I got to bed. Didn't care if I existed. You never told me that story. Packed a backpack and rode my bike to my grandma's house in the dark. I cried the whole way there. She made me two chicken pot pies and let me watch Johnny Carson. Did your mom... Realize you were gone? No. That's awful. When she shows up on her doorstep two months ago with an aluminum chip in her hand, reading that bullshit letter, all I could think about was sitting at that damn table. Just consider, just for a second, how hard that must have been for her. That story is a drop in the bucket. For all the time, she left me, ignored me, yelled at me, treated me like furniture. So all those amends she made... Ryan, all that anger doesn't matter right now. I've had it for so long. Of all the times to let it go, it's now. Not for her. For you. For us. There's, there's nothing that I can't experience, go through. There's nothing I can't do sober. The more things you do and do well in sobriety, the more you realize that, okay, I don't need that. Like, 
now in recovery, knowing that I can do anything sober, it, it changes everything. You know, right. I, I rely on myself instead of relying on outside sources to make me comfortable. I rely on my own ability to, to get through things. And that's, it's, it's pretty powerful. I walk towards telling the dirtiest, ugliest truth about myself with songs and the world doesn't end. Yeah, I should finish my story. So um, the next day, my mom said to me, you can go back to Chicago if you wanna do drugs, but if you wanna live here, you can never do drugs in this house again. You have to get help immediately. You have to get a job, you have to go to therapy. If you break any of these rules, I will kick you out for good, no contact. All I heard, I could just go back. I can just go back, but I didn't. And I don't know why. There's no math. There's no formula for that. There's no formula for who gets to recover and who doesn't. I really wish there were. I stayed and we fought and we cried and then I went to therapy and we laughed and we hugged and we smoked four million cigarettes and I grew up a little bit. I started opening doors to a life I would eventually start to lead. I started, I just started to get better. And you know what? There is nothing wrong with me. There is nothing wrong with me. There is nothing wrong with me. Lock all the doors and shut all the windows tight cause I am bringing down this house of pain. Don't look back, everything's gonna be all right cause I am bringing down this house of pain. I didn't know that I didn't have a good time till I stepped outside in the morning light. And I may never be the same, but that's all right, cause I am bringing down this house of pain. Bring on the wrecking ball and let it swing and do its thing to this house of pain. I've got some blue tip matches and a song to sing, cause I am bringing down this house of pain. I'm gonna give myself a little absolution. I'll pick and choose my sleepless nights And I may never be the same, but that's all right Cause I am bringing down this house of pain Critics' voices previously residing in my head They found their way inside this house, I've locked them there instead Successfully redressing all their names and the deeds I've done I've set the charge to blow this place from here to kingdom come. I'll be looking back at a whole lot of smoke and ash when I am bringing down this house of pain. There's a whole lot of hurt from a raggedy dusty past. It's in the rubble in this house of pain. I can't tell the future but I think I built a new one. It's got a good foundation, it'll hold up tight. And I may never be the same, but that's all right. Cause I am bringing down this house of pain. I'm gonna huff and puff, blow this house down. I am bringing down this house of pain. I'm gonna huff and puff and blow this house down. Oh, I am bringing down this house of pain. I'm gonna huff and puff and blow this house down. Don't look back. Everything's gonna be all right. Thank you. Good night.
Monday, May 11th, that's tomorrow, we will be going live with a broadcast of the reading of The White Show, featuring the original off-Broadway cast at 8 Eastern, 5 Mountain Time. Do not miss it. But if you do, if you do miss it, it will be online for four days following it. So all next week you can catch it. And we will also be holding uh, daily community panels at 4 o'clock Mountain Time every day, Tuesday through Friday, uh, where we'll talk to community leaders and experts in the field of addiction and recovery um, and have them respond to the play, have them share what the work they're doing, and, uh, and leave behind some resources for us. Uh, what's happening in the classroom? So all of those community conversations, if you miss them while they're live, will live in the classroom, which is part of our digital backstage, which you can find on our website, arizonatheater.org. Also in the classroom, you have access to some wonderful classes also geared all around the white chip. So we have a class that Sean Daniels and Lauren Gunderson taught on writing your personal narrative. Um, and then we also have classes for our ATC teens, um, which anyone all over the country ages 13 to 19 can join ATC teen. And we have- you want to, Andy, um, you want to. Yes, you do, you want to. We'll have a class with the actors from the show, um, as well as more things coming up later this month. And all of this will be uh, available after uh, it's all digital now, so you can access most of this anytime you want. We're also adding a new resources section to our website, so all of the artists you saw today or met today, uh, you can get links to their websites on our resources section and any uh, resources you may uh, be looking for in terms of addiction or recovery for yourself or for people in your life. So thank you so much for joining us. And scene.